Hello and welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. Today, Pierre Bordage, Chief Operating Officer of Sandoz, is sitting down to talk with us about the world of biosimilars and the new initiative Sandoz is supporting to increase patient access to biosimilars by facilitating greater approvability, accessibility, acceptability, and affordability. Welcome, Pierre. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about Sandoz's history with biosimilars? Well, Sandoz, first and foremost, is a global leader in the off-patent medicine sector. So that means both generics and biosimilars. And we serve uh, approximately 500 million patients with our medicines. And the, the purpose and mission of the company is to pioneer access for patients and help the world be more sustainable uh, when it comes to healthcare systems and healthcare access. And it's about 16 years ago that Sandoz launched the world's first biosimilar uh, in Europe. And since then, biosimilars have, have come a long way and they've had a huge positive impact on patients and on healthcare systems. But clearly, there, there's a lot to do to, to unlock the full potential. So for anyone unfamiliar, what are the challenges facing biosimilars today? First and foremost, um, before we think of a biosimilar, we have to think of biologic medicines and the originator or innovative medicine. And these are incredible innovations and medicines, and they have a huge potential and a proven capability to improve and extend people's lives. But because of that nature and the high value they deliver, originator or innovative biologics during their patent-protected life are subject to value-based pricing. And so by that nature, due to health economic factors, um, if you think of rheumatoid arthritis as an example where biologics are used, they're typically going to be used and reimbursed um, by insurers or by uh, governments in more severe rheumatoid arthritis conditions after patients have trialed a lot of other uh, different non-biologic therapies. And so it's important to keep that in mind because biologics by their nature um, tend to be more restricted in, in their use. And so when biosimilars come to market, that's the market in which they come into. Now, having said that, uh, last decade has seen a lot of progress in affordability, uh, largely due to the increased uptake and acceptance of biosimilars. And that affordability has allowed a, a lot more flexibility um, across healthcare policy and in incentive structures. So give you a few examples. In the, in the U.S. and in Europe, some of the barriers uh, around interchangeability continue to persist. And it's taken a lot of years for a regulatory pathway to be established. There's some patent protection and legal action challenges that prevent new biosimilars from entering the market. And so it, it can be you know, quite difficult in terms of, of access, both on building on the originator access and then going through all the, the different regulations in the markets. And so in the end, um, that's why we're really excited about Act for Biosimilars, because there's even though we've made progress and biosimilars are more and more accepted and, and being adopted, um, 
it's clear that advanced medicines um, have ways to go to reach more patients and ACT for Biosimilars is really all about that. How does a broader acceptance, adoption, and usage of biosimilars impact patients who are using biologics who are using biosimilars? Yeah, there are three big things. So I think if you're a patient, you can think about the benefit of biosimilars on treatment cost. You can think about the benefit of biosimilars on treatment access. And then lastly, you can think about biosimilars in actually stimulating more competition and more innovation. So let me tackle all three. On treatment cost, um, clearly, if you're a patient, treatment cost is really important. Whether you're a patient or you care about healthcare systems or healthcare system sustainability, treatment costs are a big part of the equation. And luckily, if we look at Europe, IQV in 2020 uh, did uh, an overview of the impact of biosimilars and sustainability of pharmaceutical budgets for Europe. And since the introduction of biosimilars, where competition has been enabled, they've been able to drive system savings by one third in those areas. And so biosimilars really bring down treatment costs. And that's a good thing. As a patient, that can help you with copay. Uh, it helps the healthcare system have more room and more availability. And here's the impact that it's had for patients. Once things are more affordable and there's more room and budgetary relief in the system, then you can allow patients to access their treatment earlier in their treatment journey. So you remember I talked about rheumatoid arthritis and how rheumatoid arthritis biologics are used in, in severe patients. But rheumatoid arthritis, 80 to 85% of patients get joint damage in the first two years of disease. And so the earlier you're able to use an effective therapy, the better. And there are a lot of risks associated with joint damage and other systemic da damage in rheumatoid arthritis. And so now that biosimilars are available, the UK is a great example. They no longer limit the use of biologic treatments and RA to severe disease. They now allow biosimilars to be used in moderate rheumatoid arthritis. Put that into perspective, that's 150,000 more patients in the UK today that can access biologic therapy for their rheumatoid arthritis because of the accessibility and affordability. So from a patient perspective, it's a very real impact. And then lastly, the minute you have competition, as you do with biosimilars, then the entire innovative industry does have a lot more motivation and stimulated uh, competitive opportunity to look at how do they bring better medications that bring efficacy and safety to the next level for patients. And so new novel therapies uh, in disease states that are already existing. And so if you're a patient, you get better access, you get better system savings, you might get a lower copay, and there's more incentive in the system for innovative companies to bring new treatments that bring the next generation of new therapies forward. And how quickly do you think that if, when a biosimilar is introduced into a market that you see some of those benefits? So it's, it's changed over time. So I would say 10 years ago, that shift uh, would happen relatively slowly. So for example, if you were to launch a biosimilar 10 years ago, it, it might you know, be able to penetrate 20 or 30% of the market. And um, it would take 
you know, a lot of time to be able to do that. And so your ability to generate system savings and patient access was a little bit more limited because, first of all, healthcare practitioners uh, were getting educated on biosimilars and comfortable with them, as were patients. And healthcare systems were looking at their incentives and their structures and, and how to stimulate adoption. Now, fast forward to today, and if you look at the launches in the last 18 months, within 12 months, 70 to 80% of a market could be penetrated by a biosimilar. So that means the originator transitioning over to biosimilars available in the market. So then you get immediate system savings and regulators and um, healthcare system administrators are very cognizant of biosimilars uh, coming into the market. Uh, so they're able to evaluate immediately if they want to make patient, if they want to broaden criteria for the usage of biosimilars compared to uh, the way the reimbursement criteria used to be. There are a few examples. If you look at uh, anti-TNFs, uh, they're used in a variety of immunological conditions. Patient access in Denmark, for example, has gone up 15% uh, just in 2020. Why is 2022 the right time for Act for Biosimilars? We're 10 to 15 years into the biosimilar industry. So you could say biosimilars are teenagers, if you will, in terms of their evolution and their accessibility to various markets. But they're still developing. And so from a regulatory perspective, from a policy perspective, from a, a healthcare practitioner perspective, there are many markets where actually biosimilars are not yet adopted, are not yet understood, and require education, outreach, and improvement. Now, that could be in a, in a certain country, but it could also be in a therapeutic area. For example, some therapeutic areas have yet to see a biosimilar uh, launched. Recently, there's been a biosimilar launched in ophthalmology for the first time, and soon there'll be biosimilars launched in multiple sclerosis for the first time. And so it's really early uh, in terms of the biosimilar industry, and there's a lot more that can be done. And that's why Sandoz, as a global leader in biosimilars, wanted to get behind ACT for Biosimilars. This is a global initiative. It's aimed ultimately at increasing patient access to biologic medicines. And we just want to foster greater approvability, accessibility, acceptability, and affordability. Um, and we have a pretty ambitious goal to improve the adoption by 30% in 30 or more countries by 2030. And we've got lots of multidisciplinary leaders uh, that are involved. Our view is if you pool the experience and the know-how of all those stakeholders and you have this ambitious goal and the opportunity in front of you, it can only do good for patients and, and healthcare systems. And we're very excited about it. What are the pillars of Act for Biosimilars as first steps? One of the aims of Act for Biosimilars is to facilitate engagement and knowledge sharing on a global scale. And why is that important? Well, there are some countries that have adopted biosimilars, and there are specific regulatory uh, policy, education, and incentives learnings that are really important. Well, you can imagine if you're a country where you haven't adopted biosimilars or you, you don't even know where to start, where do you begin? 
And so one of the things that this initiative wants to do is to facilitate that engagement and knowledge sharing so that countries that want to increase their adoption or want to look at this more systemically and want to learn from countries that have seen really good adoption and positive experience, we can connect them to those learnings, we can connect them to stakeholders, we can even connect country to country. And so I think that's just one example of an area where this movement is really aiming at. And one of the other goals is streamlining biosimilar development. Can you walk us through that and what that means? Biosimilar development has gone through a lot of uh, evolution and is now reaching a more mature stage. So 10 to 15 years post the first biosimilar being approved, you still have regulatory standards that require evolution and require uh, to be revisited. And it's really important that, that we do that. The example I could give you is that some regulators are already looking at, on a case-by-case basis, um, do they need to lessen the reliance on phase three style comparative safety and efficacy studies? Can they broaden the use of a global comparator? Uh, Can they use real world evidence to support regulatory decision making? Those are all areas that in the last five or 10 years, we, we haven't been able to successfully find enough flexibility in regulators to be able to do, but that's important. Because if you do that, you're able to make development much more efficient. You're able to bring um, more biosimilars to more patients more quickly and still deliver high quality and robustness in the development um, and the confidence that you have in the product. So some governments have issued a preliminary guidance. The MHRA in the UK is one of Uh, the bodies that has issued some formal guidelines that really move in this direction. And it's also being looked at in Europe and via the FDA, who are, I think, with an open mind, working with the industry and partnering with the industry on on doing it, because uh, it can, in the end, it's very expensive for the industry to bring these medicines to market. So the more the regulatory frameworks are fit for purpose, um, while still delivering high-quality, excellent products that, that patients can rely on, then it's a win-win for uh, healthcare systems, for patients, and for those companies like ours who seek to bring more products to more patients. Is that something that in the next few years we can see movement on? Is that a more long-term chipping away goal? It's already beginning to happen. So um, two examples I can give you. One is the UK, the MHRA, which has issued formal guidelines and the industry is now beginning to engage actively and directly with them. The FDA has also approved biosimilars without a phase three clinical study. Uh, They review on a case-by-case basis and have done so. And they're also looking at things like interchangeability and providing guidance to the industry on how to achieve interchangeability regulatory designations without additional clinical studies. So I think those kind of things are beginning to happen, but moving them from being the exception to being the norm, I think, is the hope that we'll see that accelerated in the years to come. But clearly, 
because of the complexity of biosimilar development, uh, the complexity of, of the environment that we're in, it's always going to be on a case-by-case -case basis, and the bar always has to remain high in terms of ensuring that uh, we're, you know, we have div very robust development programs that, that meet the criteria that ultimately lead to confidence and uptake in the market. Are you seeing a broader push towards really understanding biosimilars and how to make them more efficient? Are you seeing a sea change in that regard? I think so. I First and foremost, there's a lot of experience now. So with you know more than 15 years of experience uh, under our belt, if you will, from an industry perspective and a regulator perspective, there's a lot more comfort and experience and data and science to be able to look at and say, well, how can we make this more efficient? And what are some things that, you know, from the original regulatory framework, when this was new and we didn't have a lot of experience, what can we lessen? What can we look at on a case-by-case -case basis and evaluate whether or not it's truly needed? And so that is being done. Well, I welcome the news from the FDA offering $5 million funding for opportunity for research proposals to advance you know, more efficient development. And I, I'm really confident and optimistic that there's going to continue to be progress. And in fact, the hope is that that progress translates into formal and final regulatory reform. That takes time. But I do think that this is the direction that we're headed in. And I do believe that over the next five to 10 years, this is going to be a reality. With the goal of, you know, increasing uh, adoption and access by 30% in 30 countries by 2030, can you give us a little bit of information about what the Act for Biosimilars initiative is taking as its first steps or its first actions to reach that really exciting but maybe challenging goal? Sure. Act for Biosimilars was launched in uh, late May of this year, and we've gone through the process of putting together a multidisciplinary steering committee uh, to be able to uh, set the mission uh, and outline the ambitious goals. And now that has been broken down into 12 specific goals by the steering committee. And so these go across areas uh, that are going to ensure equi equitable pricing, involving patients and treatment decisions, streamlining biosimilar development and regulations. And so what the steering committee is doing now is an immediate next step is they're going to look at those 12 goals and they're going to create an action plan. And the action plan is going to provide the strategies, the tools, the, the activities to be able to equip and empower uh, a lot of stakeholders to realize the 12 goals across the 30 countries. And they're going to be looking at country, country indicator maps to track and measure the change driven by groups and associations uh, worldwide. So it's very exciting. I think we've gone from having a clear mission, having a multidisciplinary committee, to now having 12 goals that are going to be mapped on these actions in the near term, which is um, I think motivating uh, to see and will put us in, in a good place to be able to achieve the goal. What do you think the fears are around biosimilars that a pharma company might be having in the back of their head? I think biosimilars, uh, much like generics, there's naturally a lot of disinformation and or education required. And that's, I think, a very normal and natural thing. Why do I say that? Well, Anytime you take a medication, put yourself 
in the shoes of the patient or the healthcare practitioner. You know, medication is really a tool used to solve a really important problem. If you're at the point of taking a medication, either chronically or acutely for a medical condition, clearly you've gone through a really uh, difficult struggle or you've got a, a, a big healthcare challenge. And so there's a lot of vulnerability and emotion tied to the use of your medicine. And so if you think about a biosimilar, if I've been on a biological originator product, let's say for rheumatoid arthritis for years, and it's finally helped me control my disease and live the life I wanted, and I'm being informed that I'm going to be transitioned to a biosimilar product, I'm going to have a lot of questions. What is a biosimilar product? Why is this uh, safe and efficacious? Why do I need to switch? What's the benefit for me? What, which company will make it? And why can I be assured it'll be the same quality as the product that I have now? So I think these are the, the kind of natural questions or concerns and fears that any patient has actually when they're switching any um, the therapeutic agent. And the good news is that there's a lot of great education and a lot of facts that can, um, that can help. And that's why biosimilar transitions occur so well today. So as I referenced earlier in our discussion, usually within a 12-month period, you're going to have between 40 and 60% of an originator biologic that is transferred over. So patients are transitioned over to the usage of a biosimilar product once the introduction of biosimilars are made. And there's really good education by regulators, by the industry, and by patient groups and nonprofit organizations to explain that biosimilars are biological products. They're highly similar to a reference product. They have no meaningful differences for the patient uh, from a safety, efficacy, or quality perspective. And there's a lot of information available about the rigorous evaluation and the testing done by the FDA, EMA, and other regulators to ensure that both in the development and in manufacturing and post-manufacturing that there's high diligence on these medicines. So if you're a patient, I think the reason why these transitions work so well is the education and the facts are widely available. And when presented, the, the experiences are very, very positive for patients in the transition. In a market that hasn't even really been penetrated by biologics, what is the impact for biosimilars? It's one of the most motivating areas of my work and people who work in biosimilars. So if you think about where are biologics used, uh, unfortunately, um, biologics are largely used in Western countries. And the access profile in low middle income countries is quite low. Or when, when they are used, um, they are unfortunately, you know, very limited in their reimbursement to extremely severe patients and or cash paying patients only. And so you see that in many, many countries in which we operate outside of Europe, uh, the U.S. and Japan. And so we do launch into countries where once the introduction of a biosimilar is made, it's the first time that public healthcare system patients have ever had access to biologic therapy. Or there are other countries where, I mean, at, at the extreme, the cost of an originator biologic therapy is equivalent to the national average yearly income. And so if you're a patient, 
it's just completely unrealistic that you'd be able to afford biologic therapy because it's equivalent to your salary uh, annually. When biosimilars come in, they're able to dramatically reduce that burden and make the treatment more affordable, which means that the government or the healthcare system might actually list it publicly uh, on public insurance or that a cash-paying patient has a much higher likelihood of being able to afford and access that therapy. And that happens um, every day, every week, every month, because we operate in 100 countries and we make our biosimilars broadly accessible globally. And it's really motivating and heartwarming to see when we get these pieces of news, whether it's in immunology or oncology, that patients are accessing biologic therapy for, for the first time at scale in a country. Does that come with any needed changes to manufacturing or storage or distribution that you can speak to? For the industry, you have to invest in manufacturing and in warehousing and in distribution. That's a, an important investment. You also have to make sure that you've gone through the regulatory filing process to first register the product in, in that country. But once those efforts and that investment is made, what I think becomes clear is that some countries don't necessarily have the infrastructure ready for the uptake of biologics. So that could, be, could mean everything from diagnostic uh, and or um, healthcare practitioner accessibility. Uh, it could mean pharmacy and wholesaler and cold chain specialty pharmacy services. So there's a lot that goes into biologic therapy, but clearly there are some countries where that can be really difficult. So we have run into situations where we try and make our biosimilars available and accessible in a country and unfortunately, um, the healthcare services, uh, you know, are not yet at the stage of maturity to be able to really expand usage of biologic uh, therapy. And is that something that Act for Biosimilars helps with, providing that guidance about some of those more operational challenges that might come with introducing biosimilars? Yeah, that's one of the areas that that goes under the, the pillar, um, whether affordability and accessibility. But I'll, I'll give you an example. When you think about biosimilars, first of all, you have to have a regular regulatory framework in place, and some countries don't. So I think ACT for Biosimilars definitely can help foster that engagement and that adoption of a regulatory framework. The second thing is, once you have a regulatory framework in place, you actually need a healthcare system policy and incentive framework. How are healthcare practitioners going to be made aware that biosimilars are available? Will the public reimbursement or insurance, private insurance system have mechanisms to make them available and to recognize them on formularies or in, in other kind of system decision-making? And then the, the last bit, and this is important, are there incentives in the system to help transition patients from an originator biologic therapy onto a biosimilar. There's a lot of learnings that have come out from countries that have driven adoption, and those definitely can be uh, transferred over through ACT for Biosimilars in a, in a variety of different ways to different stakeholders in, in countries. Out of all the great information you've given us, what would be your hope from someone listening to this podcast that they walk away thinking about? 
I can only share what what is very meaningful and motivating to me, and then I hope it resonates with your audience. First and foremost, biologics are they're a rarely used medicine class, and so less than three percent of prescriptions globally are for biologics. So clearly. Most people in their life will never utilize a biologic therapy, and, and that's a good thing because if you have to use a biologic therapy, it means you have a, a fairly severe uh, healthcare condition. But for those that do, for the 2 3 or 4% of prescriptions that need to, to be focused on biologics, what biosimilars allow once a patent life is over for a novel originator therapy is access, affordability, and sustainability, and um, the ability to really um, help more patients and healthcare systems. And that's a really big deal because those biologics, they may be 3% of total prescriptions, but in some markets, they're up to 45% of total system drug cost. So imagine 3% of the medicines you're using, biologics, are taking up 45% of your healthcare drug budget expenditure. Now, that's huge. So bringing biosimilars in can really lessen that burden. And by lessening that burden, there's a lot of good things that happen. More patients get access, more patients have more affordable access, and the healthcare system has more money available to either adopt new innovative treatments and or expand the utilization of biosimilars into more patients where the utilization may have been restricted prior to severe patients only. So for me, I find that really motivating because biosimilars ultimately, they help the healthcare system, they help the patient, they help society, and they really help the entire health ecosystem, if you will, uh, on sustainability and access. Thank you so much, Pierre, for taking the time to speak with us. Again, Pierre Bordage is the Chief Operating Officer of Sandoz, speaking about the new initiative, Act for Biosimilars. For more information on PharmaTalk Radio podcasts, you can visit theconferenceforum.org.